Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we have already welcomed you among us. We welcome you again as we come to think about your word. Help our minds to be clear and our spirits to be receptive. In your name we pray. Amen. So Paul was a radical Jewish rabbi. I thought you might find a little tiny clip about that uh, from the cultural um, museum in Thessalonica, which talks about the synagogue that Paul visited. The religious authorities declared that Jesus was a fraud. Paul declared that he was the Messiah. Tradition demanded that God was singular, just one. Paul taught that Jesus was God too. Tradition demanded that slaves and women, Gentiles, were second-class humans. Paul demanded that they be given equal rights. One of the difficulties of, of reading the Bible is that we've lived for so long in the Christ-soaked culture of the West that we forget what the world was like when it was being written. And if you thought the West was not Christ-centred and Christ-soaked, you just haven't been taking notice. Supermarkets sell hot cross buns and play Christmas cards. We demand Sunday as a day off, forgetting that the only reason that Sunday would be honoured is because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The most common curse word on television and films is Jesus. OMG. We joke about Hail Mary passes in football. People erect white crosses on roadside verges where their loved ones died. We call our dogs Nero and Caesar, but we name our children after apostles and saints like Peter, John, Mary, Luke, Rachel, Hannah. Our Queensland premier is called Anastasia, which is Greek for resurrection, and our queen is called Elizabeth, and that was the mother of John the Baptist. We live in a Christian culture. But with all this Christian yapping, we're apt to forget that the apostle Paul, when he visited Thessalonica, was on a dangerous mission because his message was dangerously disruptive. We need to read this book as if we really were there 2,000 years ago reading this letter by the light of an oil lamp with the curtains closed in case we're seen by the Jewish or the Roman authorities and dragged off to prison. So reading about Paul in Acts, <clears throat> I couldn't help but feel how modern it was. Paul was ridiculed, attacked, and his message was derided by, wait for this, by those who were supposed to be the leaders and defenders of the one true God. Now, you shouldn't be surprised about this, because this is exactly what God promised when he raised Paul up. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And today, that persecution continues. No biblical writer is as regularly ridiculed, persecuted for his views as Paul is especially among the Theological Academy. He's routinely portrayed as some kind of 
miserable, traditionalist, orthodox authoritarian who hates change. The funny thing is, these characteristics are exactly what his contemporary enemies believed that he was not. He was flogged because he wasn't traditionalist enough. He was in prison because he insisted on change. He was chased out of town because of his message of love and peace. He was laughed at because he welcomed slaves and women and foreigners into the church and elevated them from the lowly status that thousands of years had demanded they be restricted to. And when they imprisoned him at Philippi, he wrote a letter about how to be happy. Do you see what's happening here? Paul's modern critics accuse him of the very opposite of what his contemporary critics accused him. I'm inclined to think that those who knew him in his own time and culture probably knew him best. The secular world understands this, even if the theologians don't. In his totally secular, best-selling book about the emergence of the individual in Western society, Larry Sidentop devotes an entire chapter to Paul. Roman and Greek cultures got about one chapter in total. Paul gets an entire, very long chapter. And he entitles the chapter, The World Turned Upside Down, Paul. And he writes, Paul's conception of the Christ overturns the assumption on which ancient thinking had hitherto rested, the assumption of natural inequality. And Sidentop argues that this was one of the most foundational changes in the development of Western culture. Now, Paul's radical message doesn't take long to come to us in this book of 2 Thessalonians. In the first two verses, he links the man, Jesus, with the divine Father himself. Now, you'll remember the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods besides me. And yet, Paul links the two persons of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Greek makes it clear that the two gifts come equally from each. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now scholars can date these two Thessalonian letters pretty accurately for reasons I won't go into here, but we can be confident, as we saw on the totally secular clip earlier, that they were among Paul's earliest letters. They were written somewhere around 50 to 52 AD. Think about this. Within fewer than two decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul was starting to write about God in two persons. The doctrine of the Trinity wouldn't begin to emerge for another two to three hundred years in any kind of settled form. These two verses on their own would have been enough to get Paul flogged in any synagogue in the ancient world. But within another couple of verses, he's linking the kingdom of God with the churches and the people who worship God. Now, you and I read this and we just think, oh, yeah, fair enough, kingdom of God, that's us in the church, yes, no problem. But remember, for the Jews to whom this, this letter was being addressed and who, to whom this message is being spoken, the kingdom of God could only mean 
the land of Israel, the physical land of Israel, governed by a Jewish king on the throne of David with a temple where priests offer sacrifices for sin. And in these couple of verses, Paul has declared in effect that because of the advent of Jesus, all of that which had come before is obsolete in the face of Jesus, whom he claims to be the Messiah. And then, within another couple of verses, he is announcing that God's authority to judge has been handed over to this same Jesus who will appear from heaven with his powerful angels. Note, his angels, not God's angels, Jesus' angels. And then, within another couple of verses, Paul promises that this same Jesus will return to earth in glory and judgment to do everything that the Jews had been expecting God to do for the past 600 years. It's as if Paul has slapped us over the head to wake us up to introduce his theme to this letter, that Jesus, as God himself, is on a trajectory to return to earth. You'd better be ready. And Paul returns to this theme over and over again in the first three chapters, in the three chapters of this book. Jesus is coming back. Better get ready. That for a moment is self-correction. Surely we don't believe this stuff. Hasn't science taken us well beyond all this kind of thing? We don't believe in fairy stories anymore, do we? Aren't we modern people? And we seem to have just lost our snot there, huh? Surely modern Gold Coast people wouldn't line the streets to get a glimpse of their hero, just like people did for Jesus. These images that you're seeing are of the Gold Coast superhero pageant. Surely smiling mums and dads wouldn't offer up their children to idolise superheroes. Surely we wouldn't choose to teach our children to adore grown men in disguises carrying guns rather than bring them to Sunday school. After all, we're modern, we've been educated. One part of me wants to laugh out loud at these ridiculous, gormless adults pretending to be Star Wars characters. Another part of me wants to weep for lost humanity. How much have we given up? Nobody could ever convince me that the Bible is not relevant to modern day life when tens of thousands of adults can spend a weekend dressing up to look like Batman or get teary-eyed about Star Wars, don't tell me that people don't deeply desire to encounter the transcendent almighty God in their lives. How have we made such a pathetic mess of teaching the Christianity that Paul got himself beaten up in Thessalonica for, that no one finds anything worth dying for in Christianity. 
Paul didn't get flogged five times, beaten with cane rods three times, imprisoned, stoned, and finally executed for his faith, just because he thought that Christianity had to move with the times. He was persecuted because he told the, pe the people the truth about Jesus, who really did rise from the dead, in the sense that if you were there, you would have seen it happening. He told people the truth about truth and why they needed to repent. That's why people took notice of him. Why aren't our bishops and priests being flogged? After a bombing in a church in the US, one minister went to his congregation the next Sunday and said, what are we doing that people aren't bombing our church? It's a fair question. as we commence our study of this little letter, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that this stuff is important? Even more important than a superhero or, dare I say, the rugby world rugby? Well, let's do a simple exercise in logic because I like to think. There are only two ways for intelligent people to think about Christianity. Follow the logic. Either it's true or it is not true. Good so far? It can't logically be both. It has to be one or the other. Well, if it's not true, then it is clearly not important. It must be a waste of time perhaps even a distraction, whatever is the real thing. You should just get rid of it, dump it. But if it is true, then it must be very important because of what it deals with. Notice that carefully. It must be very important because of what it deals with. Because Christianity claims to answer questions like, is God real? Who am I? Where do I come from? What's right and wrong? Is there a meaning to life? What happens after death? How do I live a good life? Because of what it deals with, if Christianity is true, it must be very important. Now that's already a good exercise in logic, but wait, there's more. Here's the really important thing. The one thing that we must not let anyone get away with saying about Christianity is that it is moderately important. You see the point? Our faith is either true or false. And because of what it deals with, if it is true, it must be very important. It cannot ever be moderately important. Now, you don't need to be able to read Greek to figure this out. Even a child can get this. It's simple. There is simply no logic to the moderately important option. That option is not open to people who can think even a little bit. And yet, this is how millions of Australians treat it. They sort of half believe it, ticking a box on a census form, but then they don't bother to come to church. Parents sort of think there might be something to it, but they don't bother to bring their children to church. 
read the census figures. That's what they say. We insist that children at our Christian schools learn the rules of grammar and how to solve quadratic equations, but then we tell them they can make up their own minds about whether they, follow, follow the, whether they choose to see whether the Christian faith is true. To do that is to completely misunderstand the Christianity that Paul taught. You'll notice in the reading in Acts it used verbs like argue, prove, persuade, explain. There was no sense of a mystical reaching out for a faith that we believe because, well, we haven't got any logic, but we'll just grab it anyway. We don't tell students that they can make up their mind whether to accept the theory of gravity for themselves or whether, as learner drivers, to accept the traffic code if they choose to. We tell them that these are facts, that they can either submit to them or rebel against them and take the consequences if they choose not to submit. Our choice, if we have a choice at all, is not whether to believe Christianity or not. Paul concluded that Christianity was true because of the fact of the resurrection. Once you start at that point, you have to keep on asking questions which will lead you logically to where Paul got to. That's the whole point of the story of his knocking off on, of, from the mule that he was riding or the donkey, whatever it was, on, on the way to, to Damascus. It's not a matter of belief any more than we can choose to believe the, th the law of gravity. Our only choice is whether to accept the rule of Christ or to reject it. Now, I know this might go against years of thinking and perhaps years of instruction in school or Sunday school, but the Christian faith is not something you believe in, like fairies or superheroes. It is something, or better, someone before whom you bow and ask forgiveness and then stand up for in the face of the world, the flesh and the devil, or if you want that in modern terms, in the face of ridicule, temptation and persecution. Paul told the Thessalonians, look you folks, when I came to you I got thoroughly beaten up. But it was worth it because I was speaking the truth about truth. Jesus is God and he is coming back. That's true and it's very true.